Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie, it's you, Jamie. Don't be alarmed, but I think there's a guy following you. Maybe we should get that guard dog we talked about? Nothing too scary, maybe like a Bichon with an attitude? You know, Progressive's collision insurance covers injured dogs and cats at no extra cost, so... Wait, the guy stood up when I stood up. He's on the phone. He's looking right at me. Oh, wait, it's just my reflection. Don't tell anyone about this. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Pet coverage not available in New Hampshire and North Carolina. You are locked on Nets. Your daily podcast on the Brooklyn Nets. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. And welcome in to the Locked On Nets podcast. Josh told me I couldn't yell this time because he's here with me in person and he doesn't want me to destroy his eardrums. So, Josh, I was calm for you. It was beautiful, Gavin. Uh, I think my favorite intro you've done so far. All right, maybe maybe we'll make it a pattern in the future. So this is the episode that will forever go down in Locked On Nets history as Ryan Rucco's debut. That's right, the national ESPN NBA broadcaster. More importantly to all of you, the Yes Network Nets broadcaster, um, is going to be on this podcast. We actually, I know, I know this is a little tricky with the uh, timing and the past and the future, but we actually already recorded our interview with Ryan. It went spectacularly. Uh, we just wanted to put this open in here to talk about a little Nets news. Josh, take it away. Yeah, um, so the Nets are apparently interested in Jared Solinger. There's mutual interest there, and he may be signing with the team soon. Uh, Solinger played in 11 games last year for the Toronto Raptors, uh, former Ohio State star, of course, and played uh, for a few years with Boston Celtics. I don't think either of us are particularly high on a potential signing. No, I mean, I think that's fair to say. Like, you, you could, if, if you want to make a case for him, you could say he kind of fills an archetype. The Nets don't necessarily have on their roster would you would you say Trevor Booker similar like I don't think they have that classic like just throw it into the post and go to work guy well I think Sullinger can post up I'd say Booker's a lot better because he's just much more mobile I think Sullinger always struggled with his conditioning um and he's like really not an efficient guy I'm on his basketball reference page here uh career 27 percent from three um and then his two point percentage is on a pretty steady decline the last few years and uh I think he's always he's never been really a true rim protector type uh Good rebounder, but I don't think would add too much to the team. And especially considering that um, he's already been in the league for a few years. He's 25 years old, still has some room to grow, of course, but you can't project that. And I think the signing would be, uh, this spot would be used better uh, for another place. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% with you, Josh. I remember um, being at the Phoenix Suns facility um, during the trade deadline last year. And when the news broke that they were dealing P.J. Tucker, uh, mostly to recoup a second round pick, but... Also, to um, allegedly get Sullinger, there, there was a little bit of buzz in the Suns arena, especially amongst the old-timers, like, oh, they're finally going to have a post-thread. And then uh, we were asking uh, Ryan McDonough about it, and he didn't come right out and say it, but it is pretty implicit right away that Sullinger was uh, never going to play for the Suns. So at least, um, even by an organization that didn't really have frontline talent last year, was not considered a guy that was good enough to um, play in the league. But Sullinger this summer doing something that was uh, near and dear to my heart, um, playing in the basketball tournament. And he was kind of the focal point, along with uh, everyone's uh, favorite uh, scrappy point guard, Aaron Kraft, uh, of an Ohio State alumni team that made the Final Four there. And, and that's, it, it's weird to say because it's such, such a new thing, but in a lot of ways that tournament 
to me, is kind of the ultimate test of if you can play in the NBA, if you if you can dominate in the later rounds of that, which, which essentially feature all the best players in the world or a very good chunk of them outside of the league, you, you might be good enough to be on the back end of a roster. And he was pretty dominant, um, at least amongst that group. So that, to me, is a decent sign that if the Nets just want a guy to fill out the back end of their roster, that is fine. I'm not, I'm not enthused about him, but I, I don't think he hurts the Nets in any discernible way. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think his career true shooting percentage is 49, is uh, 49%, which is pretty horrible. It's almost half. <laughs> pretty horrible considering his size. Um, definitely not the most fleet of foot defender. So we'll update you if anything happens on the Sullinger front. But uh, next thing you'll hear from us is our interview with Ryan Rucco. And now we welcome on to the Locked On Nets podcast, Nets broadcaster Ryan Rucco. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. Thank you for having me. All right, so Ryan coming to you live from the streets of Hoboken on the move <laughs> to give you the insights into his broadcasting career. And, and we're going to get into some Nets stuff as this podcast goes on. Yeah, um, before we get into some big questions, I had actually met Ryan uh, a couple years ago. I walked onto the one train subway, uh, and to my surprise, I see Ryan and Michael K there. Um, and I thought, should I approach these guys? They probably had a long day of radio. But I said, you know what? They're uh, they're trapped on the subway for the next couple of stops with me. <laughs> so I uh, went up and we had a nice conversation about the Nets and uh, Yankees for a few minutes. <laughs> yes, and you know that was really a historic occasion because it's the only time in Michael's life that he's ever ridden the subway. So I'm glad that you were there. To document that. Oh, my God. And, wow. And experience it. <laughs> no, I'm being sarcastic. Michael's a regular dude like all of us. But, uh, but, but yes, I actually I do remember the interaction um, because it, it, was, it was actually one of the only times Michael and I have ridden the subway together. So, uh, so it's good to now be back in a more formal setting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, just to get started a little bit, um, when did you know that you wanted to do a play-by-play broadcasting? You know, I, I kind of have known since I was a little kid. Like, if you look at uh, my fifth grade yearbook, uh, one of the things that's in, like, the, you know, career goal or future goal is uh, to broadcast the Yankees. Um, so I sort of have known since I was real young that that's what I wanted to do uh, for whatever reason. Whenever I would watch games with my dad, we'd always pay attention to the announcers and you know, I, there was always certain things I would pick up on that I liked, and I always thought, like, okay, if I can't play, which, you know, of course, that was always the first dream, um, then I think I would really like to be a broadcaster, and more specifically, be a play-by-play broadcaster. So I would track it back to when I was, like, eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the Yankees, how surreal was it to be calling the uh, brawl last week against the Tigers? Oh, my gosh. That was crazy, man. That was crazy, because... You know that that kind of moment is now going to be part of Yankee history because that was a legit brawl, you know? Mm -hmm. You know that those images and and those sounds and calls are going to be part of history. And I think, you know, that is uh, one of the coolest parts about getting to broadcast for the Yankees is knowing how how steep they are in history. And if you happen to be doing a game on a day when something like that happens, it means, you know, you're going to get to be uh, part of... uh, of the way that that gets remembered in the in the fabric of the organization, so it was pretty cool. I mean, it was also just an adrenaline rush. Like it was, it was intense. Like, and then even getting on the plane afterwards with the guys and the bus and stuff. Like that was that was a legit brawl with legit emotions and energy, and definitely one of the more unique things I've ever gotten a call. Yeah. So Ryan, you you got started relatively early 
in your play-by-play career. This is a dream of, I would say at this point, hundreds, maybe even thousands of kids across the country to do what you're doing. And you're kind of living it at the highest level at age 30. How, how did you break in so young? It seemed like the second you graduated college, you were already just a few years away from doing network broadcasts. You know, um, I really believe that Fordham and the program at WFUV is the reason why. Um, it just They accelerate the learning curve so much uh, by the exposure you get to the different people in this market, by the reps you get, by the mentoring and teaching you get. Uh, my mentor, Bob Ahrens, is um, sort of uh, on his way out at WFUV, but he taught me the, the way that Marty Glickman taught him play-by-play. Uh, play. And, you know, we have this incredible stable of, um, of alums and then also just people in the industry who are always willing to listen and help. And, you know, some of it's giving you confidence, too, because I know a real big moment in my career was when I was a sophomore at Fordham. I transferred there after my freshman year at Loyola. Um, I was doing – we would have workshops. Uh, we'd have one a week where somebody from the industry would come in and talk with us or listen to uh, our tapes and evaluate them or, um, you know, just share their experiences. And uh, Gary Cohen, the voice of the Mets on SMY, was in uh, to do a workshop with us. And he listened to uh, my tape. And when he was listening, and it was the second basketball demo I'd ever done. Um, and when he was listening, he said, did you play? And I was like, well, you know, I played in high school, and he was like, well, you have the rhythm of the game in your voice, and you can definitely do this if you want to do this. And that was a big moment for me because it was like, oh, that's a guy who knows who's telling me I can. Um, and it's important to have those foundational pieces of confidence, and it helps when you hear from someone who you know has credibility. So, you know, being exposed to those people at Fordham and hearing them say, like, hey, you can do this, and then getting feedback of, here's how you can do it better, and then, you know, actually getting the reps, because uh, we are the only, you know, it's not like there's a student radio station and then a professional one. We're the professional one there at WFUV. So the combination just kind of really helped me out, and um, we had some judges on our, uh, for our play-by-play contest called the Marty Glickman Award um, who were in the industry, and one of them was uh, Pete Silverman, who was the um, executive producer of uh, ESPN Radio 1050 in New York at the time. And uh, he loved me, and he wanted to hire me uh, right out of uh, school. And so I started doing updates with him. At the time, I was also doing stats for the Yes Network with Michael in the booth. Built that relationship, and then the people there started to hear me do stuff at Fordham. And they are like, oh, this guy's good. Like, and they had gotten to know me and liked me. Um, and then eventually that led to, uh, opportunities at yes, first with a couple random Fordham basketball games. And then I think I did my first Nets game when I was 23 and I was hosting, uh, I, the updates turned into hosting radio at ESPN radio in like 2010. And then eventually the ESPN TV people, saw what I was doing on Yes, and then and they heard me on the radio, and then they were like, hey, you know, we'd like you to do play-by-play for us. So it's kind of like one thing led to another, but it all started with uh, with the Fordham, um, you know, teaching. 
All right. So kind of on that train of thought, um, I, I'm just coming off four years of working in a college radio station at Arizona State that I think based on what you're telling me had a lot of similarities to how things operated at Fordham. And I know there there's there's dozens and dozens of kids calling games, competing for spots. And then you suddenly graduate with all those kids and you're, you're all com- competing for this finite number of jobs at the next level, as someone who's now been working on the network level for six, seven years, what do you think the biggest separator is between someone who who can do games on that college level and maybe perhaps the biggest skill you had to acquire to be able to do games on a network level? Well, you know, I mean, I think it's it's a great question. I I don't know if there's one skill that separates. I guess it, it... if I was going to boil it down to one separating skill, it would be um, not freaking out. You know, like when my mentor, Bob Ahrens from WFB, he, he always would use this phrase, and it's one of my stability pieces of advice. Uh, Ryan, when shit's live, shit happens. <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of the way I approach things. Like, yeah, sometimes things are going to go wrong. Like, don't freak out. You know, like, yeah, sometimes your audio is going to be screwed up. Me and Rebecca Lobo did a game uh, two weeks ago where the the audio was so messed up that the producer was open to us in our headset for the entire first half, meaning that we heard every single command that the producer was giving the entire truck. Now, to give you an idea, the producer might be talking for about 90% of the games, but you, as the on-air person, would only hear about 10% of that. So imagine hearing the other 80% that isn't directed to you, but hearing it directly in your ear as you're trying to broadcast the game. It's not ideal. But you know what? When shit's live, shit happens. So you have to make it work because the audience doesn't know that, and you don't want them to. Um, and so I think that you know that would be one thing that just maybe some people get lost in the shuffle is just being able to handle uh, things going haywire or not according to plan. Um, or a bus driving by you as you're doing an interview, <laughs> but like, but you know, like because things things are going to go a little bit wrong, and, and you're going to have a bigger audience, the bigger level you're on, and you, the only way that they'll ever know is if you let them know. So, I mean, that's one thing that separates. You know, I, I think in general, too, a separating thing. It's not about skill, but opportunity, right? Like, did did somebody give you that chance? You know, I, I could have all the talent and skill in the world, but if somebody doesn't say like hey, Ryan, we, we want to give you this chance, we believe in you, um, then it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily happen. So, like, you know, one of the – I think that we get lost a lot of times when we, uh, we focus on the finish line instead of, you know, whatever the first step is. And uh, I love this analogy. Like, you – if you're – let's say you guys are going to drive to, I don't know, Boston, right? You're going to your aunt's house in Boston. You know, when you pull out of the driveway, you don't say, I can't see my aunt's house. Where's my aunt's house? Why can't I see my aunt's house yet? I don't know which way I'm going. Where's my aunt's house? No. You you know that if you make that first left turn and then that second right turn and then you drive 50 miles on this highway, you know that eventually you're going to get there. And the key is to putting everything into those first steps and trusting it will lead you where you should go. And I think a lot of times – you know, we get overwhelmed by how we're going to get to the finish line. And so we don't exert ourselves in the proper fashion or focus or be present with whatever steps are in front of us. And so we never we never get there. Um, and and that's why when 
I because it is a competitive industry and it'll swallow you up and discourage you if you're so focused on the end. So I think it's really about whatever task is in front of you. How are you going to crush that? How are you going to be so good at that that it leads to something else? Because I guarantee you, when you crush step one, step two will come. And then eventually it'll lead to step 10. You can't jump there first. Yeah, I think being able to adapt and also being able to, to see what's in front of you is very important. I think that from my point of view, uh, the Nets broadcast team is probably the best in the league. Um, between all of you guys like you, Ian Eagle, Sarah Kusak, uh, Fratello, Jim Smirnarko, it seems like you guys always have that natural chemistry. How hard Thank is that to how hard is that to build um, when you're not working with the same people every day necessarily? Yeah, though, it's not easy when you're not working with the same people every day, no doubt, because there are just little subtleties that you notice from, you know, constantly working with someone. A lot of them are nonverbal cues, right? Like, for example, working with Mike Fratello, I know, like, when he just kind of turns, it means he wants to say something, you know? Like, so I know, and I just know that from doing a lot of games with him, right? Like, I know that Doug Collins will actually put his hand on my shoulder, if there's something he wants to get out. I know that anytime uh, somebody um, that's hedging on a pick and roll gets run into, um, Jim Spinarco wants to point out, like, that's a good job from the ball handler. They should be doing that more, you know? Um, you, put a, you put a quick foul on, on the defender that way. So, but the only way you learn those subtleties is the more you work with someone. So it is difficult because if you're not working with them as much, you don't know all those little things. And then there's just untapped places that you don't get to or untapped chemistry that you don't touch. But in the case of the net stuff, I think what allows it to grow the way it has is because, you know, even if we are switching up our broadcasts a lot within the year, we've, we've spent so much time working together over the years. And so it's like, okay, I think I only did three or four games with Jim last year, but I've done so many with him over the years that I know this year it's not going to be like, well, what's our chemistry again? You know? Um, so, and, and everybody who's a part of our broadcast crew is, you know, puts in incredible prep work and cares and is passionate and is fun and will let you, you know, go anywhere you want to go. And a lot of that also stems from our producer, Frank DeGrace, who's as good as any basketball producer in the country. Yeah, no, I, I, I think just in general, I'm, I'm kind of astounded by that and people who work for teams while simultaneously working for networks and that ability to kind of develop um, instant chemistry with an with an analyst, and then build on that, like you have with Mike Fratello. Um, I, I think we, we were talking before what separates network level play by play guys. And I think I think that's up there. Um, as far as you, oh, you go ahead, Ryan. I'm just gonna hop in real quick because yeah. what you just said is so true. Like when when you start viewing like the broadcaster as part of a team, that's what makes like the broadcast great, right? Like for for example, I know that when I do a game with Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe on the WNBA, we just feel like a team, you know? Like, And I know even I'm like a little different with her than I am with someone else because I there's like a cohesion and immersion of our chemistry. And they're, you know, no matter what, like, like Ian Eagle is going to be a great play-by-play guy no matter who you put him with. But what takes a broadcast to the next level is when there is this like connection and chemistry and whatever. And, uh, and I do think that's often you know, what you end up feeling as a viewer. You know, I think it's something that um, really works for Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, right? Like, they're, I think they both be amazing no matter who they're with, but, like, there's a teamwork there that you feel it's palpable, and it makes them even better. 
Yeah, and as a broadcaster, I feel like th- this is something that it took me personally a while to appreciate. But w- when you're having fun and when you're comfortable and when you genuinely like the person next to you, I, I think that really shows to the viewer. And, and as you-, you just mentioned brilliantly, that- that's something that people really enjoy and really want to see. And then, and I think that that's almost uh, you could say a microcosm of what you want at an organizational level in the NBA. And I yeah. think now we're seeing that a little bit with the Nets um, under the Sean Marks Kenny Atkinson regime. It, it seems like things are completely different. But from someone who's actually inside the team on a day-to-day basis, what are the biggest differences you've noticed since those two took over? Well, that's a. I think your observation is right. Um, I think that there's just a general faith that they know what they're doing. And it's felt on every level of the organization. I know I feel it. Like, I would trust Sean Marks with anything. I just know that guy's going to get the job done. Um, And you know it by the honesty of his answers. You know, you also know it by the deflection of credit. People who are really good at what they do don't feel the need, in general, to tell you they're really good because they know you're going to see it. You know, I always think Steve Kerr is great about that. Like, he's a perfect example. When he talks about, like, well, the defensive principles of his Warriors team. And he goes, well, I had nothing to do with that. That was Mark Jackson. You know, Steve Kerr knows what he's doing. You know, he he knows he's a great coach. He doesn't need to tell you that. That's why he has no problem deflecting the credit elsewhere. Because, you know, at the end of the day, what are we all going to say anyway? We're going to say, wow, Steve Kerr is so good, he doesn't even care about taking the credit. And we're going to give him credit, you know? Um, and I think what I like is, like, Sean has that kind of – confidence and humility um where it's just like yeah i'm gonna get the job done like yeah no this is a problem no you're right like yeah oh this isn't good enough you know he has no problem being totally open and honest because he knows that he knows what he's doing and that was an immediate shift in feel where i just think you immediately understood that there's a an unwavering faith in their process and figuring it out. And I have felt that on every level and it's what encourages me. So that all of a sudden you don't worry as much about the specifics because you know you have the internal right. So you don't worry about like, well, but how are they going to get there? Like, nah, they will. Do they will just because that guy knows. Well, when? Well, we don't know, but they will. And that's that's kind of the, the biggest shift I felt. Yeah, Ryan, it was almost painful to hear you say that because I'm a lifelong Knicks fan and I could never at any point over those 20 years or so describe the Knicks organization like that. But as as someone who hosts a Nets podcast on a day-to-day basis, I'm truly happy you can describe the Nets that way. You know what, man? I I have to say I, I feel very good about the regime and where it's at. And um, I know that my Nick fan friends have not felt that way in a long, long time. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I, d- I don't want to disparage Billy King any more than he <laughs> has in the media, but um, there always seemed to be a sense of that he would try to prove himself with going back to the Gerald Wallace trade or obviously the KG and Pierce trade. There was always a sense that he wanted uh, the next big move to show that he could pull that off. And with Sean Marks coming from the Spurs organization, obviously he has that patience and uh, he definitely doesn't care if what other people think of him. Um, so what were your thoughts on the offseason as a whole, especially the D'Angelo I- Russell and Brooke Lopez trade? You know, I, I like that trade. Uh, I think Brooke is underrated. I think Brooke is a much better player than people realize, and, and he's, he's, he's not a guy who's just easy to replace at all. And last year he proved he could play in the fastest offense in the league and have his most efficient scoring season ever. So it's not like they gave up nothing. But the reality is 
Uh, Brooks' timetable is different than the Nets' timetable. Um, and he probably wasn't going to be brought back at the end of this year. I, I think that, you know, the Nets probably could also use more of a bouncy, um, you know, athletic pick-and-roll type center. I think that also helps them. And, I, you know, we'll see what Allen turns into or if Mozgov can, you know, refine himself at all. But I think that, I think that it made sense for the Nets. It made sense for Lopez. And their only way to get better was to acquire some of this talent that has underperformed a little bit. D'Angelo Russell being that. So I like it because it's taking a chance on a guy whose metrics are very impressive, who clearly needed a change of scenery, and who is talented. And if you believe in your ability to cultivate the talent and get the most out of it, then those are the kind of trades you need to make because you're not just going to get a top two draft talent. We know that. They don't have it. So I, I thought it made sense because the Nets are looking longer term. It's worth the risk. Lopez wasn't going to be a part of their future anyway. And I think Russell is someone who they're really excited about and think has some untapped ability. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. Uh, we're going to finish up with some rapid-fire questions, so spend as much or as little time on these as you <laughs> want to. Uh, yeah, just wanted to get a couple more out. All right, so sure. according to uh, Westgate, the Nets over-under for this season, 28.5. I know play-by-play guys traditionally don't like to get into the prediction game, but can you give us a quick over-under of that? Well, it's interesting because I think that number is pretty close uh, to what I would have been predicting. I'll say over because I think this team is going to play well. I like the talent they brought in in addition to Russell. Um, but the the um, the one thing I'd say is because Sean Marks does see the forest through the trees, you know, there's a chance that even if they're playing very well, if Jeremy Lin is going to net him an asset that is going to somehow be beneficial to what they're trying to build long-term, he's not going to not do that trade because they're on pace to win 40 games. Because Sean Marks isn't concerned with winning 40 games. He's concerned with building a team that's competing for a top two seed every single year. So that would be the one thing that I could see. I, I will say this. They will definitely be on pace to win more than that, to win over. The only thing that could shift that is if their assets become attractive to contenders. I could see the Nets not caring whether they won 30, 35, or 27, or 38 games, knowing that there's something bigger at play. But I'll say over. Yeah, okay, next one uh, comes from Twitter, GNYR underscore 82. Does Ryan feel more comfortable doing baseball play-by-play or basketball play-by-play? Well, I feel more comfortable doing basketball because I have way more reps, you know. Um, but I enjoy, I don't know, you know, I, I think some of it's how... Uh, I mean, the Yankees were my number one team growing up always. Uh, baseball was a sport I played the longest and whatnot. So there's a comfort with the Yankees, um, and there's a joy that rivals the joy I get from any NBA game. Um, and I feel like I'm getting better and better and more and more comfortable doing baseball, and I do love it. Uh, but I have so many more reps doing basketball that I'd say hoops. All right, awesome. Another one from the Twitter sphere, uh, friend of the show, Matthew Epstein, asking, uh, odds D'Angelo Russell becomes an all-star um, within the, the first five years of his Nets tenure? Ooh. First five years. It's a tough position, though. Um, I'll, say, I'll say it'll happen in somewhere after, somewhere between years three and five. I'll say it will happen. So I don't know what odds you want to give it, but 
I'll say like two and a half to one or something. Yeah, we, we had a long debate about this, and, and we were saying that just because the point guard depth in the Eastern Conference isn't nearly what it is at West, we, we thought it was, it was semi-plausible, but that, that, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, I really hope yeah. it happens. Um, <laughs> next one uh, from BK to Duvall uh, from Reddit. Any funny or interesting Brooke Lopez anecdotes to share? And also favorite city on the road? My favorite city on the road is L.A. Um, I, I have great friends there. I used to not like it because, you know, we'd often stay downtown and, like, that's not L.A. But now one of my best friends moved out there. Shout out, Aaron. Um, and uh, and he showed me kind of all the neighborhoods. And so I love West Hollywood and uh, actually, Spiro Ditas, who's a play-by-play guy, always uh, shows me around Manhattan Beach, where he lives, and and then I love uh, like Santa Monica, where another one of my good friends ended up moving to. So L.A. definitely, no question. The weather, and I love the different you know different areas of it. Um, and then, uh, what was the first question again? Funny or interesting, Brooke Lopez anecdotes. Hmm. Well, I mean, he's always funny or interesting. He's always wearing some hilarious like comic T-shirt. Uh, like last year, I think he had a Darkwing Duck shirt on at one point, and then like tailspin and Ducktales. Like I mean, he basically is always representing like your your afternoon cartoon block if you're anywhere between the ages of like 26 and 34. Um, he he always is repping that. But he, you know, I'm trying to think if there's one uh, if there's one story that stands out more than others. But he actually didn't want to go see Rogue One, even though he's a huge Star Wars fan. And I was trying to tell him, like, you have to see it, because he he didn't like Force Awakens. He was one of the few people I know that didn't like Force Awakens, and he was, like, very worried about there being too many movies now. And so I was trying to convince him, I'm like, I'm telling you, I saw it, it's good. And I saw Ryan Anderson, who's one of his best friends, because I was doing a Rockets game for ESPN. And I was telling Ryan, and he was like, no way, man. He's got to go. I'm going to make him go. He has to go. And so Brooke did. Ryan had a whole thing planned where he was going with a bunch of buddies, like opening night. Um, and I don't know if it was Ryan who convinced him or if my birdie worked, but Brooke came back to me at the end, the end of the year. He didn't go anywhere near the release, but he went like at some point a few weeks after. And he was like, hey, he's like, I saw it. You were right. It was awesome, man. I really liked it. I'm still worried, but I really liked it. Yeah, that, that's a great one. And, and let, you know, let's just keep it in that realm. Uh, Ryan, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but we understand, uh, like us, you're a big uh, Game of Thrones head. And we wanted oh, to know, yes. uh, okay, all right, perfect. Uh, we wanted to know who your uh, favorite character was. And I guess very quickly, if you have a strong opinion on this, whether or not um, you like this season, because I know um, in, in mine and Josh's conversations, that's a very divisive subject. I absolutely love this season. Okay. I thought it was incredible. Like I, I know people have like panned it because of how quickly it moved and stuff, but that didn't bother me at all. There were epic moments, incredible happenings, and there were great interactions between characters that we've been longing to see interact. And even in the hallway in the in the finale, just a little exchange between Jamie and Tyrion. But there's but the but. The, I mean, that moment where Tyrion sees Jamie charging towards the dragon. That was incredible. Feeling, oh, incredible. Don't do it, you fool. Like, run away. Like, that was unbelievable. So I loved this season. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Um, my favorite character is probably Arya, uh, just because she is such a badass. And I love that Littlefinger thought he was playing her and she was really playing him the whole time. 
Um, and uh, I mean, I'm in love with uh, Daenerys, obviously. Who is um, But I, yeah. But uh, but I would say that uh, I would say that Arya is my favorite character. Yeah, I, I would say the scene of her and uh, Brienne dueling also in that uh, loot train oh, episode yeah. was oh, uh, was uh, definitely up there for me. All right, Ryan, we're gonna have to we're, we're gonna do a separate podcast at some point and have you on Let's for about forty minutes Let's... just to talk about Game of Thrones. It'll show up on the Locked On Nets feed. Everyone's gonna be pissed, but it, it'll, it'll be great. <laughs> we need a spoiler tag on this episode. That, I'm in. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just to finish up, Ryan, uh, one of my favorite parts of any Nets broadcast is the Who Am I game. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, yes. Put you on the spot a little bit here. Who's winning Who Am I this year? The uh, play-by-play oh. guys or the color guys? Play-by-play is going to win this Let's year. Let's go. Play-by-play play is going to win this year. And not only are we going to win, we are going to win going away. Because Ian and I, damn, you should have seen like the text messages between Ian and I last year. We were getting so into it. Like when we would win, we'd text each other. We'd be in different states, whatever. Like, I and I are super close, and, like, we just we, – we, you, you got to see the emojis we'd fire off to each other after a Who Am I win. Like, we, we are all about it. So we've decided to regroup mentally um, to have confidence and faith in our process, and we are very confident that that will ensure a much-needed return to victory this season. There was no German blood transfusions uh, procedure for both of you, right, to prep for the Who I, Am I season? I, I have no comment on that. No <laughs> All right, comment. beautiful. All right, uh, one final question for you, Ryan. Um, I was trying to come up with something to end this that kind of um, encompassed your career and your future goals. And JD73, what, what a unique name on Reddit, uh, came up with it. He says, uh, what's your ultimate goal in broadcasting and why? Do you want to be a Jim Nance type that's nationally known or more of a local legend be it in Brooklyn or another city? You know, it's interesting because... I feel like there are a lot of things I could do that I would feel fulfilled and happy about, right? Like, I definitely want to call championships at some point, some somewhere. I, I, I would love to. But if I don't, am I going to be like, my career didn't do what I wanted to do? No. Like, if I did what I'm doing right now for the rest of my life, I would be super happy because I love it. And I love the organizations I'm associated with. And I also love the national scene. So... Would I like to call the NBA Finals someday? Yeah, of course I would. You know, uh, would I like to be, you know, the voice of the Brooklyn Nets or the or the Yankees someday, where I'm doing, you know, a huge chunk of the games? Yeah, like of course I would. But the reality is that you know all of those positions right now are taken by not only incredibly capable uh, people, but um, but but people that I really admire and and love as as broadcasters as well as. Uh, as well as people, and they all have a, a real, you know, you know, personal place in my life. So if, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now they're ready and they want to, like, hand the torch over, cool. If not, I'm sure something will break at some point that makes sense uh, for me, whether it's, uh, you know, more of what I'm doing now or somewhere else or, or, it's, uh, or it's something I never saw coming, you know. And I just kind of try and have that, like, I mean, not – not trying to be totally cliche, but I just kind of have that faith and trust in the process and things will work out how they should because it's amazing how you get to where you are uh, and how different the route is than you expected. Like when I came out of school and ESPN wanted me to do updates, like my initial reaction was, but I want to do play-by-play. And yet I would never have gotten to do play-by-play for ESPN if I hadn't done that first. So, you know, who knows how, how it happens or how you get there. But if I could say, yeah, someday I'd love to call like the NBA finals or or be the voice of a team here in this city, sure, yes. But if it doesn't happen, 
there's a lot of other things I can do, including what I'm doing now, to feel totally fulfilled and happy. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating because I know when um, Ian went on um, Richard Deitch's podcast with Sports Illustrated, he had a very similar take on it. And yeah. he's, he's a guy who's like universally considered maybe one of the top five to ten broadcasters in the world, regardless of sport. But but he's never been the lead broadcaster for that NBA or NFL package. And, and I, I kind of like that you guys both had similar points of view on it. And at some point, I think for you and I think for him, one of those two things is going to break. A- anyways, Ryan, we've, we've taken up way too much of your time, but I, I so appreciate you coming on. Oh, guys, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope we do it again. All right, so that was Nets broadcaster Ryan Rucco. Um, we, we're super, super lucky to have him on. I, I, Josh, I mean, I, I think that went really well. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great to hear Ryan's perspective, and I thought he gave a lot of great insight into his own career and kind of putting uh, things in perspective as a broadcaster and kind of living the moment and uh, also gave some good Nets insight. Yeah, you know, it was great for me as someone who has some uh, play-by-play aspirations down the road to as, as you said get that insight into it and also that that was like the the um, monologue he had in the middle was was straight up inspiring about just kind of um the whole analogy with the trip to his aunt in boston where i, I feel like he's, he's definitely he's, he's used that before i don't think we were the first to get it um that, we can pretend that we were the first yeah, yeah it was yeah. great it makes me feel more special but yeah that was incredible that like that opened my eyes that got me fired up I, I'd, I'd run i'd run through a brick wall for ryan Rucco was my uh, consensus for that and also I, I was serious about doing the game of thrones podcast that, that has to happen at some point yeah definitely uh me and you are both huge thrones heads and it seems like he knows what he's talking about also which is it's always good to hear from those kind of people yeah so um just just on the net stuff you said what, what was your biggest takeaway because i i thought the the point he made on sean marks was something that intellectually I knew but th- but that's why you bring on people that are inside the organization he, he gave me the feel of working under Sean Marks and working uh, I guess with Kenny Atkinson yeah I think that was one of the most insightful points he had in terms of how that no matter what pace the Nets are on that's not going to change Marks's plan in the future um, and he's not going to let short-term success or short-term failure in, uh, affect his plan because it's very thought out and it's very um it's very comprehensive, and it seems like Marks knows what he's doing, and everyone in the organization is letting him run it the way he wants to and bring in that Spurs culture, and it's great to hear uh, that perspective from someone who's so close to the team like Ryan is. And I, I made that joke about the Knicks, but and, and I guess and I, I, I want to say that like Nets fans really shouldn't or can't appreciate enough just how great that is to have someone you feel secure with but I you guys had billy, yeah, yeah, say, you guys had billy king before it uh, just occurred to me so you guys you you know how just how bad it is when you have someone you don't trust in that position and, and it really is it, it sounds it sounds melodramatic but it, it's a guy you're whoever the gm of your team is that that's someone you're entrusting with one of the most important things in your life and if you can't trust that person that's that's emotionally taxing and uh, for someone who's dealt with it for 20 years it, it, it fucking sucks but now, now the Nets have that guy, and I, I, I'm jealous of that feeling. Yeah, not even Billy King. Honestly, Kiki Vandeweghe was the GM of this team for a few years, especially during the 12 and 70 year, and he had absolutely no clue how to run a team, and it was just dysfunctional, and it sucked to watch the fan and see that uh, chaos on an organizational basis day by day. And it's great and very reassuring to have someone like Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson and their team there that actually knows how to restore order to a franchise that uh, has gone through some rough times recently. All right, so he, he kind of describes a scenario where the Nets are better than everyone expect, 
And uh, suddenly, Jeremy Lin having a career season, which I, I think is something we're going to talk about more and more, but I, I think is extremely feasible in this offense um, with great opportunity, assuming he is, in fact, healthy. Um, do you see that as a possibility that that's end up being better than expected and a lot of contenders come calling for Jeremy Lin? Yeah, I think Jeremy Lin could be traded. Um, he's definitely an asset, and he has a player option for next year, which if he does decide to pick up, is pretty manageable at only $12 million. So he could be... Um, another ball handler and playmaker for a contending team. Uh, I see on Twitter that some people have mentioned Milwaukee. I think that would be an interesting fit. Um, and I think that Sean Marks, uh, he knows that Kenny Atkinson and Jeremy Lin have a special bond, but at the same time, he's not afraid to trade Jeremy Lin if he thinks that the return is going to be uh, valuable for the Nets in the future. Okay, we've gone on for about 45 minutes now, so um, let, let, let's call this a podcast. Thanks again to Ryan uh, for coming on. And if, if you're a fan of this podcast or any of our podcasts, I highly encourage you to check out the entirety of the Locked On Podcast Network. Also, check, be sure to check out Ryan's podcast, uh, R2C2, that he does with CC Sabathia, a Yankees pitcher. I'm, I'm 100%. There's some fan overlap between these two teams. Anyway, signing off for Josh, I am Gavin Shaw, and this was Locked on Nets.